Isn't it? Kind of lifts the spirits. I hope that reflects how you're feeling about your life and all together today. Wanted to start with just a little, I think I have it up there, maybe a warm-up today. But I don't know if you were here last week. Uh, we had a Go Sunday, a missions-focused week. And Pete broke up and uh, family were here. And, you know, it's just so great to have God bring people into our lives that kind of like are like just out there with their faith. <laughs> and Pete's one of those guys that's just this visionary kind of guy, and, and he would wear me out if I lived near him. <clears throat> and we probably wouldn't, <laughs> I, I don't know, I'd have to move away. <laughs> but it's so good to have people like that to uh, push me in my own faith, to, to think about what God wants to do. And, and you're not Pete, and I'm not Pete. There's only one Pete. But yet, God brings them into our lives to push us along. So if you're not like Pete, don't worry about that, but be inspired by him to, to, to take what he sees and say, God, what do you want me to see? And where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do that I'm maybe afraid of and, and be encouraged by that? God's so good to bring people like that into our lives. That's my connect because 3,000 years ago, there were a couple guys, Saul and Jonathan, who God put in the scriptures to inspire us, uh, things not to do and things to do. And it's like, how can guys 3,000 years ago inspire a single mom to, to walk closer to God or a student to, to really focus in on what God wants them to do or a student in a high school or middle school or, or older people, <laughs> people wrestling with families and all those issues and just making a living and feeling all the pressure. But God has put these men and women in our lives from the Old Testament scriptures, from all his scriptures, to, to push us in our faith. Let's read a little bit from 1 Samuel chapter 14. I'm going to be reading the first 15 verses. So I invite you to follow along. There's a pew Bibles if you don't have your own Bible. 1 Samuel chapter 14, reading verses 1 through 15. Just part of the story going to try and get to today. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron, and the people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes and the other the name of Senna. The one crag rose in the north in front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come. Let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. That Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. 
But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up. For the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be a sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan, excuse me, before his armor bearer killed them, excuse me, and they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after. And that, and that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length and an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. And the garrison and even the raiders trembled, and the earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. Let's pray together. Lord God, as you have promised, take your word and use it to fill us with faith, with courage, with correction, the needs of our heart that you know that each of us need individually and together as a body of a local church. So we pray this so that your will would be done in Jesus' name. Amen. God's grace supplies everything we need. What no eye has seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. So here we are. God's revealing to us what he wants us to know by his Spirit so we can walk and live for him. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted us to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Saul and Jonathan, king and the king's son, are put side by side now in, in, in Samuel's book by God himself. The Holy Spirit's done this so that you and I can learn lessons and we can compare their lives and, and see that Saul was beginning to walk by sight and not by faith. And his son Jonathan, in comparison, is walking by faith and not by sight. Not what he saw with his physical eyes, but what he believed God wanted him to do. So today, I just want us to, to look at this, these lessons today in 1 Samuel 13 and 14 and see what God would have for us. So we compare these men so we have lessons of faith from our own lives and obedience. So pick up in chapter 13. If you have your Bibles open, we, please turn back to chapter 13, and then we're going to take a look at a few verses and see how Saul, God's anointed one, God's chosen one to be king, was beginning to walk by sight, and he had impatient disobedience. There was a challenging time. Let's pick up the action in verse 2. Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. This is 1 Samuel 13, verse 2. Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul, went to Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. 
And Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines, that it was a Geba. And the Philistines heard of it, and Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it, and said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Ben-Haven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still a Gilgal, and the people followed him trembling. And if we take a little bit look later on in that chapter, we see that there was no blacksmith in Israel, so there were few, only Saul and Jonathan had swords. I don't know what the rest of the warriors and troops had for weapons, but it was a bad situation. It was not a, a hopeful situation. There were 600 soldiers with Saul. The rest of them were starting to flee and to hide, and it was not looking very good. But I just want to remind us, if in case we've forgotten, that God's been here before, right? And every time Israel was in trouble, God delivered them. Just a couple weeks ago, do you remember the last verse in 1 Samuel 12, verse 24? <laughs> Only fear the Lord. And serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he's done for you. Here's a Gideon-like situation. Are you familiar with Gideon's story? Judges chapter 7, verse 12. <laughs> and the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. And Gideon gathered all these troops, and then God said, that's way too many, Gideon. And, and how many troops did Gideon fight with and defeat his enemies that were like the sand and the seashore? 300. So here Saul has 600, but it's amazing. Isn't it when we get afraid and fearful, when life comes pressing in, when circumstances aren't really nice, when we don't see a way out, when our eyes are not seeing things, that our fear begins to cloud our vision and we can't remember that God delivered us just, wasn't it just a, a few months ago that this happened? That Saul or Samuel had reminded them that all God had done? Wow. You know, sometimes God allows us to get in circumstances because of our own foolishness and sinful choices. And then when we cry out to him, he delivers us. And other times, God purposefully allows circumstances to come into our lives to box us in a corner so that he can show his great power and deliver us. Think the Red Sea. <laughs> I mean, God led them there, the Israelites there, to trap them so that he could deliver them, so he could make a way that they couldn't see, so it would remind them how great a God they serve. And here's one of those situations where Saul's looking at this multitude of Philistines. This was the looming war that that's the reason Israel wanted a king in the first place to fight for them. Here it was now, the war's here, and this is what God had appointed him to do, but everyone is fear and trembling. Our fears erase our memory so quickly. In verse 8 of chapter 13, Saul we pick up there, it says, He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. 
But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering for me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. We're beginning to see Saul's heart exposed. He's under pressure. He's being driven by human sight, and he ignored God's command to wait for Samuel. He's there. I can see me. Can you see yourself there? Something's got to be done. I'm the king. God's put me here. I got to do something. But he was commanded to wait, and he ignored it, and he's beginning to take charge and look just like all the other kings of all the other nations would. I want to take a bunny trail real quick. There's irony in Saul's offering a burnt offering. I just stole some information from the NIV study Bible notes. So if you have a good study Bible, the ESV study Bible, well, that's, it's really big and thick, but it's got great notes to help you. <laughs> a burnt offering. It's a voluntary sacrifice covering general sins and expressing devotion, commitment, and complete surrender to God. But here Saul was being disobedient to God's very command, and yet he's offering an offering. Oh, that's kind of weird, offering an offering giving an offering to say, I'm fully devoted to you, God, but I'm disobeying you at the same time. There's irony there. Not true devotion or worship. He was using the sacrifice as a way to, like, try and leverage God, like, to earn favor. Other Old Testament sacrifices included fellowship offerings, which are also a voluntary act of worship to give thanksgiving, to show fellowship. A fellowship offering included, notice the word fellowship, a meal with the priest, with the person who was offering the sacrifice, and with God. And then there's sin offerings and guilt offerings, mandatory atonement for special unintentional sins, mandatory atonement for sins requiring restitution as a guilt offering. And when these offerings were being offered together, there was an order. You do the sin offering first or the guilt offering. You got to deal with sin first. Sometimes we forget that step in our worship. We forget to come clean before God. We just want his grace, but we forget to ask for it. We forget to confess our sins. And then there's the burn offering. The worshiper commits himself totally to God. And then there's the fellowship offering. I've committed myself to you, and now, Lord, together with others, I'm declaring that I want to walk with you in close fellowship and community. And since today's Communion Sunday, it's appropriate to think about this. You know, Jesus Christ fulfills all those offerings for us. He's our guilt offering. 
He's our sin offering. Isaiah 53, 10, it was the Lord's will to crush him, to cause him to suffer, and the Lord makes his life a guilt offering. For what the law was powerless to do, Paul tells us in Romans 8, 3, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. Jesus is our fellowship offering. He's the one that makes the way for us to have fellowship. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. In John's gospel, he says, I lay down my life. I lay it down on my own accord. And then there's fellowship. Picture that communion, a meal. We just celebrated it today where Jesus said, eat, eat me, drink my blood, eat my flesh. I'm true bread. I'm true drink. The bread and the cup symbolize Jesus' body. It's a picture of fellowship. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. That's the end of that bunny trail. But I think it's important to understand that Saul is saying, Lord, I want to follow you, but I'm disobeying you at the same time. False piety here, false worship, true worship. John chapter 4, Jesus tells us, those who worship me must worship me in spirit and in truth. That means what I say, what I say I believe, is what I begin to do. Worship in spirit and in truth. And when we fall short and sinfully go astray, we confess our sins because we want to come back. We have a heart for God like David possessed, and we're going to see that in the pages ahead as we study through Samuel. And, you know, Jesus knows the truth about us. <laughs> he offers us forgiveness and power to follow him if we will just come clean. And Saul's being exposed here. His impatient disobedience has negative results. We're given insight into his heart and mind, and, and God's just asking us today, are you worshiping me in spirit and in truth? You say this, what you believe about me, but are you worshiping me? Are you following me? Are you surrendering to me? Are you admitting when you don't? Saul gave excuses. <laughs> I love the way they have it here. When I saw that the people were leading, I felt compelled, it says. I, 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 I made myself do it. I didn't want to, but I made myself do it. If he only would have dropped his pride, only confessed his fear and weakness, if only he admitted that he had disobeyed, but because he didn't, because he was afraid of the people more than he was afraid of God. He lost the blessings, the privilege for himself and his children of having a kingdom. When we neglect, ignore, and forget God, what do you do when you feel the weight of responsibility to keep your business afloat? What do you do when you're feeling the weight of making your marriage and family work? What do you do when your congregation's ministry seems to be going nowhere? What's our automatic turn to? Well, if we're honest, sometimes we're like Saul. 
We turn to what we see. We turn to ourselves, our natural inclinations to go by what we see and not what we think God has, not what we know God promises to do, but we can't wait. We have to take action, but we need to obey because God never asks us to do something against what he says we ought to do. Where do you go when you feel the weight of responsibility to make things work? Just fix your eyes on Jesus. Because he felt the weight of his responsibility as the Son of God to die for the sins world, for the sins of the world. He was tempted just like us. He was feeling the pressure, and his success came where? In communion with the Father, with obeying the Father, with trusting the Father, and he had victory. And Jesus promises to walk with you and me. The Holy Spirit is sent to guide us. He tells us, let not your heart be troubled. And I want you to know something. I bet you your heart was troubled this week about something. Maybe it was a little thing. Maybe it's a big thing. And Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled. Saul was having one of those days his heart was troubled. We're troubled by our health. We're troubled by the attitudes and actions that our children or our teenagers are making. We're troubled by our own habits, our bad habits. We're troubled by unwise choices that we made in the past that keep coming back to haunt us. We're troubled, we're troubled. We read the headlines and we're troubled. And I just want you to remember that Jesus died and is risen and he's overcome it all. And if you die a pauper here, it's okay because sons of God, you're rich. And you may never get it here, but you will have it there. So believe it. Trust him and obey him. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. We remember Jesus this morning and the great things he's done for us. Do not doubt it. There is nothing we do that God's grace cannot, cannot touch and turn into good. But it's only for those who turn to faith in God through Jesus Christ. Only they can experience the mercy of God and the grace that is powerful enough to take our foolishness and turn it into something for our good. That is God's way. That is God's plan. He gives life. He doesn't take it away. And that's what God wants us to learn here. And Saul is missing it. Do you remember we can share in the triumph of God's victory or we can share in the wrath of his triumph? God is going to win and Saul was missing it because he didn't believe and because he disobeyed and he would not, because of pride or whatever was in his heart, admit his need. But Jonathan does get to share in it and that's where we want to go now. Walking by faith, courageous initiative. And verse 14, verse 6 is kind of like the key verse of this chapter. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. 
So Jonathan's looking to God, and we read chapter 14, verses 1 through 15. And, and what a contrast to his father. Remember, Saul's hiding either in the pomegranate cave, or he's, he's sitting under a pomegranate tree, depending on how we translate the Hebrew. But whatever he's doing, he's just sitting, sitting still, and he's trembling, and his men are scattering. He's not asking God. He's not seeking God. He's just waiting for Samuel, and he doesn't even obey. He just can't wait long enough. He's disobedient. But where's Jonathan? Well, Jonathan's out there looking, well, what does God want us to do? So he sneaks off and he says with his armor bearer, let's go out and see if God's going to give some more Philistines into our hand. Hey, just a little, little precursor here. There's a reason Jonathan's heart was knit with King David's heart. Because if, if Pete Brokop is this visionary guy that instills faith, well, Jonathan's one of those guys I would need to hang around sometimes because this is crazy. But he's one of those valiant men that God brought alongside King Saul, King Saul's own son, to go out there and fight battles. And it's so cool. It's like John, he was looking. Jonathan was remembering. I think he's remembering because the language similar like Gideon. He put out that fleece, like, God, if you really want us to do that, well, they'll say, come up here, guys, we're going to show you something. That's the word that says God wants us to go. He was asking for God's wisdom and help, and God gave it to him, all of James chapter 1. If you lack wisdom, ask God for it and believe he's going to give it. I think Jonathan's remembering Mizpah when Samuel prayed and it was a great thunderstorm and drove the Philistines away. I think he's remembering his great victory that his dad had, King Saul, against Nahash and the Ammonites just back in chapter 11 in Samuel. There was a great deliverance. 20 by 2. You know what a half an acre is? Well, I know what half an acre is because I grew up on an acre when I was a kid for 18 years. Half an acre was my front yard in Muncie, where we just moved from. <laughs> Half an acre is about what this church sits on. Or an acre is what this church and the parking lot sits on, thereabouts. So just picture half of it. So 20 men, by Jonathan's hand and his armor bearer, were killed in about half an acre, or half of a field that a yoke of oxen can do in half a day whatever the Hebrew says. I like half an acre. I can picture that. Two valiant men that God provided Saul. And if it was a USA where this happened, there'd be a memorial stone on that half acre because of the great battle that was done there because that's how we like to mark out our histories. That's the kind of guy we need to be for one another sometimes. When God makes clear what we need to do, Two against 20. By many or by few, we need to go. It's true. In 1982, which was a pretty long time ago now, <laughs> a 33-year-old old man, Larry Walters, a truck driver, had nothing to do. He was out of work. And he was tired and he wanted to do something. So he rigged to a Sears lawn chair 42 helium-filled weather balloons. And he took his pellet gun and he took off from San, San Padre, California. And he was shocked to reach 16,000 feet rather rapidly. That's a long way up, folks. <laughs> 
And he surprised pilots reported seeing some guy in a long chair floating in the sky. <laughs> he finally started to shoot out some of the balloons with his pellet gun, and he landed safely in Long Beach some 45 minutes later. And when people asked him, why did you do it? He just said, I had to do something. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> what is it God wants us to do? And we're afraid. But we know we should. What neighbor is it? What coworker is it? What student is it in your hallway that God wants you to begin to reach out to? I know you are doing it. I'm not trying to guilt you like you're not doing it, but people, we need to start talking about those people with one another and praying with one another about those people and doing things where we can invite them into our homes together to you know, surround them with God's people so that they can see what faith in God looks like. Moving when God tells us to. Obeying when the way is clear. That's what God's asking us to do. He's, that's what he's asking me to do. And that's what's so great when a, a Pete comes here and reminds us about that. Or we read a story in the scriptures about a Jonathan to say, wow, I need to be more like Jonathan. God, help me to see it. And you know what's wonderful about this? Because Jonathan obeyed. Because God, he asked God to lead him, and, he, and God did lead him, and, and it was clear what he wanted him to do. And Jonathan started something, but then God took over. God sent this great panic. And the Philistines started to fight one another, and they started to run. And, and King Saul, <laughs> he was watching it happen, and then he calls the priests come. You know, like, hey, what's going on here? Who's here? Who's worried about who is missing from the camp? And God's starting to move, and he's just watching it happen. What happens when God rescues us? In verse 23, it says in chapter 14, and God rescued Israel that day. God always does rescue. It's always God. The king, the judges, they were just stewards of God's work in their hands. But when God's people believe and obey... Something happens. Jonathan obeyed in the Lord's leading, and he did great things in half an acre. And that was just the start of it. When the young church prayed, things happened. Even though the political system and the religious system was against it, God went to work. The priest had to step into the Jordan River to get into the promised land. They had to walk into the water before it stopped flowing. They had to believe God, take him at his word, and obey. And then God did great things. Philip obeyed and despised Samaritans, and an outcast eunuch came to faith. Peter went against every cultural inclination he had grown up with. And he went to Cornelius' house, and a whole household was saved of Gentiles. D.L. Moody was crossing the Atlantic Ocean, famous evangelist in the late 1800s. And a, and a young man came running into his ship's berth and said, we got to pray. The ship's on fire. And D.L. Moody said as he was running out the door, grab a bucket and pray as you throw water in the fire. It's time 
to not only pray, but then when God shows us what to do, to act in belief in his promises. Courageous initiative seeks God and obeys and acts. Walking by sight, the end of chapter 14, we come back to Saul. Imprudence and lost opportunity. My father, Jonathan says in chapter 14, verse 29, has troubled the land. Look at verse 24. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. (laughs) Words are so powerful. This is a foolish oath. Energy was robbed. Words can do so much good. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in the settings of silver. Like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a a wise reprove to a listening ear. Like the cold of snow in the time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him. He refreshes the souls of his master. Boy, words can do so much good. And they can do so much harm. Proverbs 6. Let me just read these verses. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor and have given your pledge for a stranger, if you, have, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go hasten and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Go to the ant, O slugger. Consider his ways and be wise. (laughs) Saul got caught in an oath that he should have never made and he should have run from it. He should have just admitted it. He should have just stopped in his tracks and said, God, I was stupid, forgive me. But he wouldn't let it go. So he robbed his whole army of energy. I mean, they needed energy bars and Gatorade at least. But he said nothing. It was piousness. It was trying to look spiritual, and it wasn't spiritual at all. God was leading the charge, and Saul's standing back saying, who's that? What's that? What's going on here? Let's check it out. Let's, let's inquire the priest. And it was obvious that God was at work. And his oath actually led to a greater sin because the men got so hungry, hungry that at evening they started to kill animals and eat it with blood in it, which was a forbidden sin. They didn't drain the blood out. They were so hungry. And it's like, so his oath... He wanted to hold on to that, and it led to other disobedience. It was foolishness. Jonathan, on the other hand, hadn't taken the oath because he wasn't in the camp, and he saw some honey, and he ate that honey, and his eyes lit up. He had some Gatorade. And that's when he said, my father has caused all this trouble. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. The commandments of the Lord are pure and enlightening to the eyes. They're sweeter also than honey and droppings of the honeycomb. Saul was trying to appear so spiritual like, no eating for the glory of God. 
Nice locker room talk, but you know what? The troops needed food. A decisive blow to the enemy was lost. I just mentioned this. Who's really being king here, Saul or Jonathan? Saul was sidetracked by stubbornness. Real quickly, I want to look at verse 35. And Saul built an altar to the Lord, and it was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I think God's telling us it's a bad thing. It's the first time he ever came to God by himself to worship God. Wow. Reveals a little bit about his heart. Who's his counselor? Where's Samuel? He's not there. Ahijah the priest, not Samuel, is giving him advice. And that's a clue that Saul was not listening to God, but listening to his own voice. Ahijah was the son or a relative of the line of Eli that had been cursed. It's just another clue to us that Saul had pushed Samuel away and wasn't listening to the voice of God. Is God trustworthy? That's the Sunday school answer. All your heads should be going up and down, yes. But it's not enough to say it. Faith that doesn't follow through on what I believe is not faith at all. It's dead. It's not alive. It's a fake. We need divine counsel. We need a word from God to help us know his truth and then to obey it. Saul had Samuel and he pushed him away. And by pushing Samuel away, he was pushing God away. And then on the other hand, there's Jonathan. He wasn't even the king, and yet he's following God with all his heart. He's, he's putting it out there and saying, God, lead me and direct me. And when you give me the word, I'm going to go. Because he believed God's promises. He remembered what God had done. Believer in Christ. Are you a believer in Christ this morning? A follower of God? A follower of the way? You have a word from God. You have the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and I bet you there's a Samuel right here today that can speak encouragement into your life and God's word into your life. Or maybe you need to be a Samuel to somebody else that will just guide and direct them. Would you be willing to do that? Because those who look to God and follow his leadership are going to accomplish a lot. Individually and as a body of Christ, a local church. Church. There's Pete's. And there's other people in your life that you can think of. And then there's Jonathan. Just think about how you want to follow in his steps. Let's pray. God, make us people. Make us people who walk by faith and not by sight. Oh, Lord, give us your truth. Help me to see it and to believe it and act on it as we pray, as we seek your will, as we... Uh, want to glorify your name and build your kingdom and just, Lord, show off your glory. Help us to believe. Help us to believe it's true that nothing can hinder you, Lord, neither by many or by few. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.